All right, well, good morning. Everybody, uh, everybody good from Thanksgiving, all full of turkey and all that good stuff? Huh? Yeah, I want you alert. All right, I want you sleepy. You know, it's not a good sign when you all fall asleep on me. Amen? You know, um, one of the most uh, often asked questions I get, mainly from people outside of the faith, is this one. Why is there evil in the world? Why doesn't God do something to stop it? How do you explain this and that? And it's an interesting question because I think we all have some answer to that. I mean, the the real answer behind it, the foundational answer is this, that we live in a sinful world and humanity is broken. So when you see things happening, happening in Israel and and Gaza, and you know that it's just, it's a no-win situation for everybody. But you also see things like that, tragedies around your own community and your own life and around the world. And you, you're always torn in this tension because you know that the world has fallen, humanity has fallen, and we all suffer from that, that weakness that sin came into the world. And we look and we long for that day when things will be made right. But I think the the question that is least asked me is this one, and it's one I want to talk about today, and that is this. Why is there good in the world? See, nobody asks that question because there's an assumption that the world should always be good and everything should always work. And so people don't ask it. Uh, News media basically operates from an idea that there's bad in the world, and that's, and that's the news, and, and that's unusual, and so we're going to tell you what's going on in the world. But why is there good in the world? Why is there beauty? Why is there order? Why is there life at all? When you begin to ask that question, you have to go back to God. If you don't have God, then you have random things that happen in the universe, spontaneous evolutionary things that just kind of brought the world into existence. And we're just lucky that it's as good as it is and that we can survive until the grave. And yet, that's never satisfying, is it? It's interesting, the entire system of atheism is on the decline. In its place are multiple gods and multiple religions and things that kind of come together and don't even make sense. Or just the idea, I don't even think about it anymore. But you have to go back to why is there good? Why is there order? Just think about how delicate the environment that we live in and and how just small changes can change everything in your life. Well, when you look at the Bible, God said when he made the earth, he said it's good. He spoke to the seas. He said it's good. He spoke to the mountains, good. Plants, good. Animals, good. But he didn't speak to man and say it was good. He spoke to himself and said it is good. Because you see, in man, made in the image of God is good, and he saw a reflection of himself, so he spoke to himself. We might say that when God begins to talk to himself, it's really good. When you talk to yourself, it may or may not be good. Amen? But I want, you to, I want to talk to you today about the goodness of God. 
And I want to I dig into this in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. You can follow on the screen, of course. But it says this in Deuteronomy 8. When you have eaten and are full. Now let me set the context. Context is that God is telling Israel, you've come out of the land of Egypt. I've delivered you out of Egypt and I'm bringing you into this land that I'm referring to as the promised land. It's going to be a land not perfect, but a land that's going to be better than where you've been. It's going to be filled with with all kinds of blessings, but also all kinds of challenges. But when you get into that land and you get settled, and when you have eaten, now here's the context, and you're full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So that makes sense, doesn't it? I go into the land and things are going well for me. I want to bless God. How do I bless God? I bless God by just acknowledging that he's God, that he's a good God. I bless God by living out my life for him. That's blessing God. When I sing praises, I bless God, don't I? And, and, you know, sometimes we don't get into this blessing thing because we're so caught up in the trouble things of life. He goes on to say this, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Have you ever forgotten God? Have you ever just kind of gone through your day and go like, you're just not God conscious. It's not that you're pushing him out of the way. It's just you're not God conscious. You're not thinking about God and things come your way and you go, wow, that was really lucky or that was really fortunate. And the word fortune is really interesting. It comes from the word fortune. really comes from the word magic. I don't ever want to be fortunate. Right? I don't live my life by fate or by magic or by a roll of the dice. I live my life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? But we look at life and we just kind of we just kind of forget him momentarily. And it says, forget the Lord by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you to this day. So one of the ways I forget him is I forget these different dimensions of how God has spoken, whether it's a commandment of God that's direct, a statute that kind of sets the, the stage for what I want to do, or reminded of the judgments of God. And I forget God and I go like, I'm just living my life. I'm just trying to enjoy life. And God wants you to enjoy life. That's why God is good. See, the enemy, when he spoke to Adam and Eve, he was trying to convince them that God was not good. And the only way you're going to have fun and and experience life and get away from this bad God and experience good is you've got to reject that God and you've got to be a God to yourself. In other words, you've got to control your destiny. You've got to do everything you can to make life the way you want life to be. And that lie, not only does it permeate society, but it also creeps into our life as Christians, doesn't it? Why, I deserve this and this and this. And I should have this. Why do they have that? And this is why remembering the statutes, the commandments, and the judgments of God becomes so critically important to understanding the goodness of God. Because you can't really understand a good God if you don't know that God, amen? Amen. If you don't know about that God or what that God has said. But he goes on to say, when you have eaten and are full, and you have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied. So you see this idea of prosperity, don't you? You say, well, I'm not very prosperous. Well, you probably are living better than 99.9% of the people on planet Earth. Because 99.9% percent of the people on earth make less than $20,000 a year. How you doing? 
Say, I'm only making 18. Well, keep working. Get another job, amen. Ask for a raise. You need something going on in your life. But the idea is we, we tend to, to, to lose perspective on where we are in life because we see what we don't have because we think that's bad instead of going, no, look what I do have. Why is there good in the world? Why was I able to get up this morning and breathe air and, and come and worship with you because there's goodness and order in the universe? Even with those chaos is spinning in our, in our world because of fallen humanity, they're still good. And the greatest danger point in my life becomes when I become more prosperous. When I go from having this to having this, and I go from having this to having this, and I think, wow, look at me. Look what I have done. You know, there was a, a phrase that, was, that came into vogue, you know, in the early 19th century of America, and it's the idea of being self-made. I'm a self-made person. And the idea was I did it. I pulled myself up by the bootstraps was one of the terms that was used. And the idea was that there was nobody there to help me, but everything you do in life, you are dependent on somebody else. Say, well, not me. Oh, yes, you. How about the water you drink? You're depending on somebody for the water. How, well, yeah, but I got my own money. Who printed it? Who backs it? That's a really good question. And so what, what God is reminding us to do is I don't want you to ever get to this idea that you think somehow it's all about you and not about me. And there are danger points as you go into life where you're going to, you're going to be more tempted to think it's not about me and it's more about you. Have you ever noticed how independent and free you feel when nothing's going wrong? Everything's great. And then something goes wrong, you're like, it's not great. You're... And, and, you know, sometimes the only time we really get serious in prayer is when things don't go right. God wants to reverse that. God wants to switch that up. So here's the thought. Don't wait until you feel grateful to express, express gratitude. Don't wait till you, you feel grateful to express gratitude. Sometimes I don't feel grateful, but I need to express gratitude. My feelings fool me. Do yours fool you? Now, you know, Tammy and I spent most of our life living in places where they didn't have pleasant weather. All right? It was like the operation of the day was gray clouds, probably rain, and definitely snow. When we first visited here in 1989, Tammy had been here earlier. She didn't tell me about how beautiful it was, but we visited in 89. I said, we're moving here. Why are we living in Ohio? That was, we were living in Ohio. I said, why am I living in Ohio? I'm pretty sure that nobody would choose Ohio. You, you have to be born there. Go, I am going to Ohio. Have you been there? Now, if you're from Ohio, we love you. Our daughter was born in Ohio, so I'm not anti-Ohio. I'm just saying, when I got out here and I go like, well, I want to live here where it's warm. Where when it's, 60, I'm freezing. Can you relate to this? Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about. All right? And the idea is that sometimes when it's cloudy or it's a little cold, I don't feel grateful. Or something goes wrong. You know, everybody's fighting a battle. Have you ever, do you realize that? Just look around you. Look, look right, left, up, down. I, just look at everybody. Everybody around you is fighting a battle of some kind. I don't know what it is. 
You don't know what it is. They all put on a happy smile, come to church and say, I love Jesus and sing a worship song and lift their hands and come at the front and jump and clap and holler and howl at the moon. I mean, they do all those things. But you don't know what's going on in their life. But you see, whatever's going on in your life, you have to decide to be grateful. And when you express it, it's like motion. Have you ever noticed things in motion are easier to move? Right? A wheel going down the, down the, the road, if it's going downhill, it gets faster and faster. It builds up some momentum. Do you know that when you express gratitude, momentum builds up, and you begin to feel grateful, even when you weren't grateful because you were so stuck in where you were. Hey, if you haven't experienced this, you are one of the few that hasn't. So don't think, wow, I, I, I do that. It's okay, that's a human side of you. But you see, also, the image of God's side of you can say, but wait a minute, I know I can express gratitude even when I don't feel grateful. The other thing is, don't forget to enjoy life. You know, there's a, there's a whole kind of branch of religion, Christian and other, that kind of has this philosophy that you shouldn't enjoy life. And if it feels good, looks good, smells good, it's probably sinful. <laughs> Don't do that. If you're miserable, you're probably closer to God. I've known people like that. I mean, I just, you get around and you go like, man, I don't know what you got, but I don't want it. <laughs> you know, it's like they got baptized in pickle juice. I mean, what is wrong with you? <laughs> but God wants you to enjoy life. Have you ever just read the Bible and read about the things he tells you to enjoy? Enjoy life. Enjoy your family. Enjoy food. Enjoy wine. It says it. I mean, you say, I don't drink wine. Well, that's fine. I, I know. I've seen you drink beer. <laughs> but the idea is life is meant to be lived because God created us to enjoy him and enjoy life. That's why we have things like thanksgiving. How about that? That really comes out of the Old Testament. It's not like it's, it's a, a very unique American kind of a holiday, but its origin really is in the festivals of the, of the Old Testament, of thanksgiving, and being grateful for what you have. If you take an inventory of what you have versus what you don't have, you're going to be a lot happier person. If I said, let's just make a list of what we don't have and how, where we're unhappy. I mean, this would be a sad crowd this morning, Right? <laughs> But if you say, what do I have? What has God given me? And let me express gratitude for that in my life. Other thing, if you're going to understand the goodness of God, you have to also understand the shaping of God. The shaping of God. You know, God has to shape us to be like him. We start out like you know, like, like a piece of clay that's not been turned on a wheel or, we, or like a piece of stone that has not been chiseled into an image yet. And we're rough and we need to be buffeted and shaped and, and chiseled and, and sanded in order to be more and more like him. Well, you know, that process of shaping us is not easy, is it? You know, the Bible says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's Ephesians 2. Now think about that. We are his workmanship. The word workmanship is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English word poem. So let me just kind of make this, put that definition into that scripture. You are God's poem. 
created in God's likeness, right? That we might show forth the good works of God. Now, if you've ever written, anybody ever written a poem? Any poets in here? A couple of poets. Any of them written any good? Not many poets in the house, amen? I wrote a poem, third grade. Have it memorized. How many of you want to hear it? The rest of you don't want to hear it? When you have the mic, you get to do anything you want. Amen. I have a cat who likes to climb trees. He likes to sit in the cool, cool breeze. He thinks one day he'll catch a sparrow. He doesn't know it, but his chances are mighty narrow. A little hand. Come on. Wait, there's more. I have a cat who likes to catch butterflies. He likes to leap at them in the clear blue skies, but the butterflies just whiz by and leave old Tom on the ground to cry. Come on, give me a little bit more. Now, that's not a great literary work. It's cute if you're in third grade. If you just wrote it as an adult, it's probably not that hot. Are you with me? But even as a young child, I had to work on rhyming words. And that poem had to look right and it had to sound right. That's, that's, that's the qualities of a poem. It's noted for lyrical beauty and structural perfection. You see, God has to rework your life line upon line till you're noted for lyrical beauty and structural perfection. You are his workmanship. You are his poem created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the shaping of the Lord, oftentimes you say like, I'm going through this. Why am I going through this? Or why is this difficulty coming in my life? Or why is life hard? You ever ask that question? Why does life have to be so hard? If you haven't asked that, I don't know what planet you're living on. Because you see, sometimes what we do is we waste our sorrows. You see, you take, you, everybody has sorrows in life, but if you waste them on bitterness and anger and discouragement and defeat, they don't shape you into the image of God. They turn you into somebody you don't want to be. And this is why the Bible warns in the book of Hebrews, beware lest a root of bitterness springs up in you, and by it many are defiled. You see, bitterness is kind of the advanced version of anger. And you get bitter, you go like, I'm just bitter about this side of it. Some of you could, could actually catapult your joy and your happiness just by looking back on your life and forgiving somebody. Just by not blaming someone, you could actually improve the joy factor in your life. You say, well, I'm not gonna forgive them. They, you don't know what they did to me. Doesn't matter. Not about them, about you. What if they don't say they're sorry? Doesn't matter, not about them, it's about you. That's why you can forgive somebody that's passed on and gone into heaven or the other place, and it still works. Because forgiveness is a Greek word that means to throw away from you. It's I'm getting this out of my life. If you want to catch it, that's fine. If you want to let it drop, that's fine. If you want to re reciprocate, that's fine. But I'm getting it out of my life. That's part of the shaping of God. Amen? And this is where healing, a lot of healing gets blocked up because we haven't really gone down some of these roads to get stuff out of our life. What's in your life that's not healthy, what not happy? You gotta have something probably if you, or unless you just did this exercise. How about that name of that one person that when they mention that name, it comes up to you and it brings up a whole set of emotions. Anybody got one of those? Hope it's not me. 
Okay, let's look at the scripture. Deuteronomy 8, 14 and 15. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, here's the, here's the equivalent for us. When you forget it was God who saved you and you forget what God saved you out of. This is the warning. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through great and terrible wildernesses. The great and terrible wilderness in which there were fiery serpents, scorpions, thirsty land where there was no water who brought water for you out of a flinty rock. So this is the, this is the historical setting is Israel and they're, they're in the wilderness. They're, they're, they're going 40 years in an area literally about the size of Missouri, but if they'd have taken the direct route, they could have been there in 14 days. You see, sometimes when you're in rebellion against God, you're not taking the straight path. You're going in circles, and it takes you so much longer to get to your promised land. Because you're grumbling, you're grumbling, you're griping, you're saying, I don't know what's wrong with God. God's not this, God's not that. And God says, I want to take you on the straight path, but you weren't ready. You see, it's easy to get you out of Egypt. It's hard to get Egypt out of you. It's hard to get you to stop thinking like the world. It's hard to get you to stop thinking like the Egyptians. You have to come to the place where you do not trust in horses, you do not trust in chariots, you trust in the name of the Lord your God. And that's where I have to get you. And it's hard to get you there because you're so, you're so set on, on being right and thinking you've got the idea and I'm just gonna keep you going in circles until you figure out I am the Lord your God. And when you figure that one out, life is gonna get simpler for you. It's not gonna get easy. It's not gonna be painless at all times. It's not gonna be perfect. It's gonna get easier for you and you're gonna be able to withstand the fire and the winds when they come up against you. Can I get an amen on that? All right, the shaping of the Lord. You see, God shapes us by truth. Now, truth is not what you think is true. Truth is what God says is true. John 17, 17 says, thy word is truth. So truth is what God says is true. People say, what's the gospel truth? They'll tell me. I had a guy sell me a car, try to sell me a used car one time. He said, this car is perfect. It's the gospel truth. He didn't know I was a preacher. I said, it's the gospel truth. He said, that's right. I said, what is the gospel truth? I don't know. This car. I said, no, this car is not the gospel truth. The gospel truth is this. Jesus died on a cross, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day. Is this the gospel truth? He said, it's not the gospel truth. So what is true? God shapes you by truth. How does the truth come? The truth comes by the reading of the word, and you read the word of God, and you go, Wow. That applies to me. That's truth. Like Paul says in Romans chapter seven, he said, had the word not said thou shalt not covet, I would not know what coveting is. But when I looked in the mirror and I said, that's me and that's coveting, now I get it. I need truth to shape me into the image of God. I need the word of God in my life to shape me into the image of God. If I don't have the word of God, then I'm on my own mind and I'm going, I know the Bible says that, but... We got a lot of butt Christians in the world. That's the problem. They're always making an excuse for the word of God they don't want to bring into their life because they don't want to be shaped by truth. They want to be shaped by their experiences, by their life, by their emotions, by their money, by anything else except for God. No, you have to say, God, shape me by your truth, please. 
We need to be, don't forget uh, as we go through this that God shapes our life over time. You know, they say time heals all wounds. I don't know if that's true or not. It definitely helps. But our life is shaped by time. And every one of you are in different seasons of life and how you look at life and what you've been shaped by. You know, when you're really young, you don't think anything will ever go wrong. You think everything is perfect and everything's going to always be like high school. I remember we went to my 20-year high school reunion, and there were a couple of guys that still had their Letterman jackets on. I don't even know where mine is. But they're still living 20 years earlier in a world that doesn't exist anymore because that was the biggest and happiest time of their life. You can't let the past be the biggest and happiest time of your life. It has to be the present. Because the present day is when you're living in the direct communion with Almighty God. You've come through seasons of time where you can look at life differently. You look back, whether you're 20 or whether you're 80, it doesn't matter. You look back and you go, I see how I could have done different. I wish I would have done different. I wish I could relive that time, but I can't. But what I want to do is take all the collective wisdom of the past, pull it into the present, and I want to try to make better decisions moving forward. And that's how we let the time shape us. Time is a commodity that we only, all of us have the same amount of. We're always running out of it. You ever notice that? Everybody, how you doing? Man, I'm just, I am just, man, I have run out of time. I've run out of energy. I've run out of everything. But you have as much time as any other person on planet Earth. What are you doing with it? The way you steward your time is more important than the way you steward your money because if you steward your time right, then you'll have more money. <laughs> Hello. Well, I don't like that. Well, I don't care. <laughs> God shapes our life with trials. This is the one we hate, right? How many of you want to go through a trial? If you raise your hand, you are sick. <laughs> you don't want to be, you don't want to be, you don't want a trial? I want a good trial. If I had a bus out front said, these are the most extreme trials you'll ever go through in your life, get on the bus, God's going to take you on a journey. How many to get on that? I'm not getting on that bus. I don't even want that bus parking. I'm parking at that other church over there. Amen? <laughs> but, but trials, oftentimes we create the trial by dumbness. I did, we just do dumb things and we get, you know, guys are the best at this, by the way, ladies. I don't know if you know this. I mean, I've had more guys tell me, and I just keep repeating this because it's so much fun. Guys tell me all the time, they'll tell me something they've done that's totally stupid, doesn't make any sense, and I go, why'd you do it? And they'll look me right in the eye, and they're not lying. They go, I don't know. <laughs> they're not lying. Guys are just that way. My wife said, what do you think about it? I said, nothing. She said, how can you think about nothing? I can do it all day long. It's just good. I like it. Guys can do that. I saw this uh, Instagram uh, video, and I, I really my, I enjoy these so much, and I share them with my wife. She doesn't have near the appreciation of them that I do. But there's a guy, and he's on his phone, and, and, the head, and, it, and here comes the wife running, going by with a ladder in her arm. And he said, what is it about women that 30 seconds after they ask you to do something, they take the initiative and do it themselves? <laughs> Anybody got one like that? I, I mean, I got one like that. I mean, it takes me 30 seconds to get out of a couch. I can't get this thing done this quick. But, it, but time is a great helper because over time you realize that if you just slow down your response time, she'll do it all. <laughs> this is why women have babies. 
They are stronger. No guy would ever go through. If the guys who want to have these things, go for it. Romans chapter 5, listen to what it says. Romans 5, verse 3 through 5. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. You know, your ability to stay in the fight says a lot about you. Because it's easy to give up, isn't it? It's easy to quit. But it says here that, that it produces, tribulation produces perseverance in my life. What I need to do is when I go through a trial, I need to thank God and say, God, I may not like the trial. I don't want to go through the trial. I may or may not be guilty of creating the trial, but God, I want you to build into me perseverance through this trial. And then notice what it says. And perseverance builds in what? Character. Character is what you are when no one is looking. Character is not who you try to be or pretend to be or act like you are. It is who you are. Character is not something you're born with. It's something that's beaten into you through trials and perseverance and challenge and difficulty. But not only does character, character builds hope. Now, hope is not this wishy-washy kind of hope. It's confident assurance in what God has promised God will do. So I have hope because I went through trials, because I saw the hand of God over time. He brought me to this place, and while not every one of my prayers got answered, not, not that I didn't waste my sorrows on some of those trials, but I can stand today and say because of those trials and because of time, I am a more persistent, have more character and more hope than I would have had without them. And I'm a better person. Because remember, God is trying to shape me for eternity. He wants me to enjoy life on earth, but he's shaping me for eternity. You weren't born for time. You were born for eternity. And God has an eternal plan for you in eternity that far exceeds all that you could ever ask or imagine. I don't know what that is, but I guarantee you God has a plan that supersedes the plan that he had for planet earth. And what you learn here and what you do now and what you invest in now and what you store up in, on, in heaven on earth is going to pay great dividends. Look what it says. Now, hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When I have the hope of God, I can live out my life because I know God's in me. That means you can go through trials. You go up and down, around and around, but you know what? You've got hope, and the hope comes from God. You ever had people say this to you? I just feel like everything's going to get better. I just want to say, liar, liar, pants on fire. You don't know anything about what's going on. You don't have a clue on this one. I appreciate the optimism, but here's what I do know. I do know if you stay persistent Walking with God, you're going to see more blessings come than if you don't. Now, that's not really profound, but it's true. I can't tell you everything has gone my way in my life, but I can tell you this, that staying the course with God has paid dividends 
of joy and hope and character and persistence that nothing else in my life ever did before. Now, let me show you the supply of God. Remember, we're talking about the goodness of God. Why do good things happen? Why is there good in the world? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna. Now, manna is a Hebrew word that literally means what is it? You ever had a meal like that? My mom was a great cook of things that my dad would go, what is this? She could take every leftover for the last four years, put it in a meatloaf, and we were expected to eat it. And my dad would go, what is this? She'd say something to the effect, just eat it, you'll like it. It's kind of a famous line of mother cooks, right? And it was always good. I mean, my mom was really a great cook. But manna was this bread-like substance that came down from heaven to feed the people of Israel in the wilderness. And they looked at it and said, what is it? What is it? And it was God's miracle feeding. Do you know that sometimes God feeds you by miracles? It's outside of the explanation of human reasoning and understanding. But God is a feeder God of miracles. Now watch this. It, uh, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and he might test you. Do you know that sometimes God does stuff in your life simply to humble you? Because when you're proud, you can't see God. You want to see God. You think you can see God. You think you know everything about God. And then God brings you down and he goes, now do you understand that I'm in control of your life? Now do you understand and he says, I want to test you too. I want to take you through a, 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 the fire a little bit because I want, to, I want to bring out in you what really is good. You see, the refiner doesn't heat the gold because it's something wrong with it. He heats it because there's something right with it. And if he can take off the dross from the gold, then he's got pure gold. And all of us are like gold. In the hands of God, we are the image of God. He says, if I can just get some dross off of you, you're going to reflect like the glory of God. He says that he might test you to do good in you in the end. That you say in your heart, my, by my power and, and might and my hand have I gained this wealth, and you shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he might establish his covenant, which he swore with you and your fathers this day. You realize, so God says, I'm doing this. You know why? Because I want to test you. I want to humble you. I want to bring you to the place to where you understand that I am, I am responsible. I'm the one you need to give credit to for whatever you have in life. Whether you call it wealth or you call it poverty, you got it. it's because you have a God in this world. And when you acknowledge God like that, God begins to establish with you his covenant. You know what the covenant means? A covenant is an arrangement that God made between man and God, and it was always sealed in blood. The Old Testament was sealed in blood. It was always a sacrifice, God's sacrifice on your behalf. And he made a covenant. It's not a contract. You don't have a contract with God. You have a, you have a covenant with him. And the covenant says, I'm going to do this. All I need you to do is do this. When we acknowledge that, God blesses. You see, God supplies, and I want, I want you just to take note of this. God supplies in three ways. There's much more, but I just want to identify three of those ways that God supplies according to Scripture. Number one is he supplies by miracles. Some things that we have in life we cannot explain any other way except God did something. God did something. 
And we give God the glory. We say, God, thank you for, for doing this miracle because I don't know where this came from, how this came about, but God, you arranged circumstances and situations and you brought about healing, you brought about prosperity, you brought about freedom, you brought about whatever you brought about, God, it was a miracle and there's no other way to look at it. Another way that God supplies the scripture is through others. This is the most interesting scripture, and I don't know why I've kind of missed this basically all my life. The scripture, I mean, I've read this, I've preached on the scripture like dozens of times, but Luke chapter 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down. How many of you have heard this before? You've heard this scripture? Okay, you're probably more insightful than me, but look what it says. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will men give unto you. It doesn't say God will give unto you. It says men will give unto you. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured out to you. Now let's just kind of take this scripture apart. Let's look at it. Give. So I have to be the, I have to be the primary person to get this thing started. When I give, it says it will be given to you. So I'm going to get back, sowing and reaping, good measure, okay? In other words, a measure equal to what I gave or more. It's going to be pressed down, pressed down. This word means to make as compact and tight as you can. Have you ever bought something from uh, Amazon and you tried to get it back in the box? I mean, you had to cut it in half to get it back in the box. You go, how did they pack this thing? I can't get this back in this box. And I think it's a strategy, so you just keep it. But God says, what I want to do to you, I want to bring something back to you in measure greater than what you gave. I want to make it so compact and tight that I couldn't do any more in this situation if I wanted to because it's packed that tightly and that well. It's going to be shaken together. You know, when you shake a, a, a suitcase, you can get all your clothes to the bottom. You can Then you can go back in and do If you don't know this, you just shake it. And then you go back. You think you did a great job packing. Then you've got like four inches at the top. My wife's good at this. She can get over 700 pounds in a small suitcase. <laughs> shaken. Now look what it says, shaken, together, running over. So now there's not enough room for it. It's running over. Will men give unto you, for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. The history on this was they, they wore robes in those days, and oftentimes what they would say, the, the King James uses the word into your bosom is what it says. And the idea is they would wear these robes, and they would pull them up like this, and they would create a pocket here at their chest. And the idea was that men are going to come, and they're going to begin to fill up that pocket to where it's pressed down and it's overflowing. And I, and I begin to realize that over the years, so many people have blessed the ministry of the church, this church and other churches I've pastored. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't like manna that dropped from heaven. No, God, God moved people to do something because they believed in the kingdom of God and what God was doing. Or people just responded because they wanted to help somebody in need or they wanted to build a house in Mexico or they, they wanted to expand the building. Whatever it was, that they were, they were moved of God and God used men. You know, in the book of Luke, there's another account there where it says there were these women that, that had all been delivered and been healed or saved through the ministry of Jesus. One of them was a demon-possessed woman, and, and they all followed. They followed Jesus, and it says there were certain wealthy women that were with them, and they followed Jesus, and it says this is how Jesus' ministry was funded. It wasn't funded by gold dropping from heaven. It was funded by, in that case, 
wealthy women who follow Jesus. Luke says it's followed, it, it, it's, it's fueled by men will give unto you. That's why I said everybody in this room is dependent on somebody else for something. We don't live totally isolated from apart. The third thing is covenant. We, you know, God supplies by covenant. Do you realize that when you become a part of the covenant of God, this relationship of knowing Jesus Christ, when you come in that covenant relationship, it comes with benefits. You see, the covenant was sealed in the blood of Christ. For thousands of years, the enemy of God has lied and deceived mankind. He comes as a thief to kill and lie and destroy, the Bible says, but the, and the cross of Christ to those who are perishing, the Bible says is foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation, amen? Salvation thought he won the battle at Calvary 2,000 years ago, but Calvary would be his undoing. When Jesus rose from the dead, he destroyed him who had the power of God, uh, uh, had the power of death, and to God give the, God gave the glory when he raised Jesus from the dead. Amen? You see, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present or things to come can ever separate us from the love of God or the power of God. The Bible says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. It says the generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house and his righteousness will endure forever. Isaiah the prophet said, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Blessed are those who wait for him, expect and look and long for him. Proverbs says this, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. When you are weary and when you are tired, when you have little or no hope, when you feel beaten down, when you are discouraged, when you're out of work or in a crisis, remember that Jesus said this, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. You see, sometimes you just have to forget those things that are behind you. Amen? Forgetting those things that are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press forward, Paul said, I press forward to the goal for the prize of the upward calling in God, in Christ Jesus. You see, the goodness of God is meant to bring you to understand more of his goodness, not less. When you say God is good, and I love you, God, you are defeating a thousand lies of the enemy who's trying to convince you that God is not good. He's not there for you. He's not gonna help you. You just gotta say God is good. Will you say it with me? God is good. God is good. God is good. When you say it, God is good, you're dispelling them. When you say the name of Jesus, you're chasing demons out of your life. You're bringing up the high praises of God, and you say, God, would you inhabit the praises of my life? And I'm going to say the goodness of God is going to lead me. The power of God is going to direct me. The truth of God is going to is correct me, and I'm going to live as a, in the image of God, and I'm going to acknowledge the goodness of God. Why do good things happen? Because there is a good God in the world. Amen.